You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Welcome to episode 68 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And this week we have new listeners from London, Portsmouth, Ipswich, Norwich, Southampton, Guildford, Liverpool, Cardiff, Birmingham, Manchester, Hull, Chichester, Wrexham, Doncaster, Camberley, Derby, Gloucester, Swansea and Chelmsford, all in the UK. We have new listeners from Dublin, County Meath, County Kildare and County Wexford, all in Ireland. We have new listeners in Marseille and Nice in France, in Geneva, Freiburg and Zurich in Switzerland, in Madrid and Barcelona in Spain, in Lisbon in Portugal, in Mersch in Luxembourg, in Amsterdam, Rotterdam and The Hague in the Netherlands, in Dusseldorf, Dortmund, Frankfurt and Munich in Germany, in Copenhagen in Denmark, in Oslo in Norway, Skane in Sweden, Helsinki in Finland, Ostrava in Poland, Minsk in Belarus. And a big welcome to you, our first listener in Belarus. We also have listeners in Prague in the Czech Republic, Vienna in Austria, Venice, Milan and Vibo Valencia in Italy, Moscow in Russia, Mecca in Saudi Arabia, and again, big welcome to you, our first ever listener in Saudi Arabia, from Tokyo and Hyogo in Japan, from Sydney and Melbourne in Australia, from Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, from Santander in Colombia, and then in the USA this week, we have new listeners from San Francisco, Pasco, Boston, Denver, Tucson, Washington DC, Atlanta, Minneapolis, Seattle, Dallas, Sacramento, New York and Phoenix. So a big welcome to all our new listeners there right around the world and of course a warm welcome to all our regular listeners. I really do appreciate all of you who take 30 minutes or so out of your week to catch up on the latest news in the world of GDPR. I really appreciate all of your feedback. So if you have any feedback, please send it to podcasts at insurety.co.uk that's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk Equally like hearing from you with any ideas you have for new features for the programme, things you'd like us to cover, people you'd like us to interview, or perhaps you'd like to be interviewed yourself for the uh, programme. And we're always willing to consider interview requests. I don't have time, unfortunately, to reply to each email we receive individually, but please be sure they are all read, and wherever possible we do action them and put them into future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. So, in just a few moments, I'll be telling you what's coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Check us out on Facebook. So, coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have news of a data breach at Adobe Magento. We have news that the new European Commission President pledges to introduce GDPR-style legislation for artificial intelligence. We have news that the Polish ICO has imposed a €47,000 penalty for violation of data consent rules. We have some thoughts around data retention periods, especially with regard to estate agents. We have news of Twitter reconsidering their stance on deleting inactive accounts. We have some guidance if you're an organisation or company based outside of the EU as to when GDPR does apply to your data and when it doesn't. We have news for pension funds in the role which pension fund trustees are now ruled to have with regard to GDPR. And then we finish this week with a repeat of our article on GDPR and Christmas cards, as it's something which we know a number of you have expressed an interest in hearing that article again. So, as usual, a mixed bag of articles for you this week. 
I hope you enjoy the programme and I hope you find it useful and entertaining. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We start this week with news of a data breach on the Adobe Magento Marketplace platform. For those who aren't familiar, Magento Marketplace is where Magento e-commerce customers can access software add-ons for Magento, including extensions, themes and third-party services. The platform has approximately 250,000 customers. The company hasn't said when the breach happened, but they have said that their security team discovered a vulnerability on the 21st of November 2019 that had allowed an unauthorised third party to access account information. After investigation, Adobe found that the data compromised include names, email addresses, the Magento ID, billing and shipping addresses and phone numbers, plus limited commercial information such as the percentages for payments to developers. Adobe said in a statement that upon discovery, we immediately launched an investigation, shut down the service and addressed the issue. Adobe are keen to stress that no passwords or payment data have been compromised and that none of Magento's core products or services, i.e. the software host on the site, had been affected. What we don't yet know is how many accounts had been affected and how long the breach had been undiscovered. We have approached Adobe for this information, but on past form, they don't tend to release it into public domain, but maybe they will. We'll wait and see. It's important to stress, though, that the Magento shopping platform itself, the e-commerce platform itself, which a number of online stores use for their checkout, has not been compromised in any way. This doesn't affect the core product. It's solely the Magento marketplace, which, as I say, is where Magento users can purchase add-ons to Magento. So, if we receive any more information from Adobe on this, we will bring it to you, of course, in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The incoming president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, has promised to introduce new legislation governing artificial intelligence amid fears about Europe's increasing dependence on US technology. In a speech on Wednesday, Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission Chief, said she was in favour of an AI-focused legislation similar to GDPR that came into effect last year. She said it's not about the damming up the flow of new data, it is about making rules that define how to handle data responsibly For us, the protection of a person's digital identity is the overriding priority. On the subject of technological sovereignty, von der Leyen said, We must have mastery and ownership of key technologies in Europe. These include quantum computing, artificial intelligence, blockchain and critical chip technologies. To do this, and close gaps as it is now, we must act together. Let us pull our resources, our money, our research capacity, our knowledge, and let us put this into practice. The European Commission is likely to draw on the work of its high-level expert group on artificial intelligence, which outlined a series of principles earlier this year, which are aimed at ensuring companies deploy artificial intelligence in a way that is fair, safe and accountable. The rules, developed by a committee of academics and industry representatives, form part of the European Union's plan to increase public and private investment in artificial intelligence to €20 billion a year. The new legislation is likely to be overseen by Margrethe Verstager, the 
competition commissioner who has waged war on US tech giants in the past and is gaining new powers under von der Leyen's new administration. It was announced in September that Vestager would become the EU's first executive vice president for digital policy, also managing competition regulation. In her new dual role, Vestager will be tasked with overseeing digital policy, improving cyber security, managing data laws, regulating competition, capitalising on the rise of artificial intelligence and protecting the EU bloc's technological sovereignty. The new cabinet takes control of the Commission today, the 1st of December 2019. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The Polish Personal Data Protection Office, the Polish equivalent to our ICO, has imposed an administrative fine of over €47,000 against a company Click Quick Now for obstructing the exercise of the right to withdraw consent to the processing of personal data. To give a little background to this, one of the fundamentals of GDPR is that if a user has given consent, then it must be as simple for the user to withdraw that consent as it was for them to give the consent in the first place. In this case, the PDPO has ruled that Click Quick Now did not implement appropriate technical and organisational measures that would enable easy and effective withdrawal of consent to the processing of personal data and the exercise of the right to obtain the erasure of personal data, commonly known as the right to be forgotten. Thus, it violated the principles of lawfulness, fairness and transparency of processing of personal data as specified in GDPR. The president of PDPO found that Click Quick Now's actions were also inconsistent with Article 7, Paragraph 3 of the GDPR. The company did not take into account the principle that withdrawal consent should be as easy as giving consent. Indeed, in the view of the PDPO, on the contrary, it applied the complicated organisational and technical solutions with regard to withdrawal of consent. Moreover, the company did not facilitate the exercise of the subject rights as required by Article 12, Paragraph 2 of GDPR. After consideration, the PDPO established that the company violated the above-mentioned provisions of GDPR because the mechanism of the consent withdrawal, which involved the use of a link included in the commercial information, did not result in a quick withdrawal. After the link was clicked, messages addressed to the person interested in withdrawing consent were misleading. In addition, the company forced stating the reason for withdrawing consent, which is not required by GDPR. Furthermore, failure to indicate the reason of why the person was withdrawing consent meant that their consent was not withdrawn and they continued receiving material from Quit Now, even though they clearly had indicated that they no longer wished to do so. In his decision, the president of the PDPO also pointed out that the company processed without legal basis the data of data subjects who were not direct customers of Quit Now and from whom the company received objections to processing their personal data. Thus, he ruled that it had also violated the so-called right to be forgotten. When determining the amount of the fine, the president of the PDPO did not take into account any mitigating circumstances affecting the final penalty. He also decided that the company's action had been intentional, providing contradictory communications to the data subject interested in withdrawing consent, resulting in an ineffective withdrawal of consent. 
In this way, the company made it difficult, or in some cases even impossible, to exercise the rights of the data subjects. It's worth noting that the president of the PDPO did not only impose an administrative fine on the company, but also ordered it to adjust its process of processing requests for withdrawing consent to data processing to the provisions set out in GDPR. Click Quit Now now has 14 days for it to comply with the decision. In those 14 days, the company must also delete the data of data subjects who are not its customers and those who rejected the processing of the personal data concerning them. And it's worth stressing here because it is really important that if you are relying on consent as your reason for being able to hold data and process data under GDPR, then you must ensure it is as simple to withdraw consent as it is to give it. So if all you have to do to give a consent is to click a checkbox on a form, then all the customer must need to do to withdraw their consent is to uncheck a box on a form. It has to be as simple as that. It has to be one mouse click. It can't be made more difficult. And you, whilst you can ask, certainly ask, a customer why they're withdrawing consent, you can't force them to. So if they uncheck the box but don't want to give a reason why they're unchecking the box, you simply have to stop dealing with that person from that point in time. If you have any queries on that, do drop us an email to podcast at insurety.co.uk, E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk, and one of our specialists will get in touch with you. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll probably remember that a few weeks ago, we mentioned about a German company, Deutsch Vernon, which had been fined by the German ICO for £12.4 million pounds or 14 and a half million euros because they retained data on individual tenants for far longer than they had outlined in their data retention schedule. Now as you know with GDPR every piece of data has a data life and within your records of what data you hold each category of data should have a data retention schedule i.e. a date on which you will delete that data. And what the Deutsch Vernon case proved was that it's very important that you stick to that schedule and that you actually task someone with periodically going through your data and making sure that you're not holding on to any data for longer than you should have done, unless you can create an exceptional circumstance for an individual piece of data, let's suppose there's an ongoing legal dispute, where you need to retain that data until that legal dispute is settled, then that's fine as long as you document that. But a question was raised of us this week from a UK estate agent, who is also a lettings agent, who was concerned because he said that under the housing benefit regulations, the housing benefit might have to be reclaimed at any time by the local authority, if it detected fraud, and that that housing benefit would then have to be paid back to the local authority by the landlord. And the understanding is, having looked into this a bit further, is that this can go back as far as 20 years. Well, I pointed out to the estate agent that this really was not a major problem 
as long as within their data retention schedule they clearly documented that they kept tenant data for 21 years, which would allow a little bit of margin over the 20 years which the Housing Benefit Recovery Scheme allows for. And that would all be fine. So that's all you need to do. So it doesn't need to be a big panic. It's not like, oh, we've said in our data retention schedule, we're only going to keep this data for two years, therefore we're going to keep it for two years. Well, if that's wrong, then update your data retention schedule and say that you need to keep the data for longer. The important thing is that you have a data retention schedule that says how long you're going to retain data for, and, as I mentioned previously, that you do stick to it that you actually have someone whose job perhaps is to go through your data every month and make sure you're not holding on to anything longer than you should be. That's the crucial issue, not actually how long it's for. So if you don't have a data retention schedule and you feel you need one, well, in fact, you do need one, but you don't have one and you need help drawing it up, then please do drop us a line to podcast at insurety.co.uk, E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk, and we'll be very happy to help you put a data retention schedule together. Or indeed, if you just got questions about how your data retention schedule should work, then again, just drop us a line to that email address and one of our specialists will get back to you. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The whole issue of data retention periods, which we mentioned in the previous article, uh, came to light this week as well, on a much larger scale, uh, thanks to Twitter. If you are a Twitter user, and perhaps you have a number of accounts, or you just haven't used your Twitter account for a while, then you may well have received an email or other communication from Twitter saying that it was going to disable inactive accounts where they hadn't been used for quite some time because it could no longer hold on to the data under GDPR because the data retention period had been exceeded. However, it wasn't communicated in the best way that it could have been by Twitter and Twitter has now said that it will pause plans to disable inactive accounts following user backlash because of the huge toll of such accounts that would have taken place. The social network said it would now not remove accounts until it had a process for memorialising dead users on the network. It admitted that not having a policy in place had been a miss on their part. The firm said it was taking action on inactive accounts due to regulatory concerns. The company said on Wednesday that they apologised for the confusion and would keep everyone posted. On Monday, Twitter had begun contacting users who hadn't logged in for the past six months, warning them that they would have their accounts deleted unless they signed in and agreed to the firm's latest privacy policy. After a substantial number of complaints, the company admitted it had not considered the issue a potential upset that would be caused by the removal of accounts belonging to users who had since passed away. Because, of course, that actually wouldn't fall under GDPR. They could do the two things and still be compliant because GDPR, and it's important ruling, GDPR only applies to people all the time that we are alive. The moment we die, we're no longer protected by GDPR. None of the the rules and regulations of GDPR apply to our personal data. And so there's not an issue in retaining data after someone has died. It's only whilst they're still a living person. Other networks, such as Facebook, offer a process called memorialization, whereby verified family members or other loved ones can request a deceased user's account is kept on the network, but frozen in time, so it can't be posted to anymore, 
but anything that the person had posted whilst they were alive is still there ad infinitum for people to look at. Twitter is now saying that it's looking at creating such a tool. When we spoke to them, they said that beyond complying with GDPR, we may broaden the enforcement of our, of our inactivity policy in the future to comply with other regulations around the world and ensure integrity of service. We will communicate with all of our users if we do. So we wait and see now what Twitter do. We will, of course, keep you updated via the GDPR Weekly Show of any updates as we become aware of them. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. One question which often arises with GDPR is, particularly in the case of companies or organisations who are based totally outside of the EU, is when does GDPR apply to them and when doesn't it? And the EU have offered some extra guidance in this this week. So if we take the example of an Australian company who offer a mobile news and video content service based on users' preferences and interests, users can receive daily or weekly updates and the service is offered exclusively to users located in Australia who must provide an Australian phone number when subscribing. So they're quite clearly not targeting EU customers at all then in that instance what happens if an Australian subscriber of the service travels to Germany on holiday and continues using the service the original decision was that whilst he was in Europe he or she then GDPR would apply to that Australian subscriber however the new reading from the EU is that In this instance, because the service can clearly demonstrate that it is not targeting EU users or UK users, then although the Australian subscriber would be using the service whilst in the EU, because the service is not targeting individuals in the EU, but only targeting individuals in Australia, the Posters and Personal Data by the Australian company does not fall within the scope of GDPR. So... If you're an overseas company based outside the EU, you only target users outside the EU and one of your users travels into the EU or the UK, you don't need to worry about GDPR. GDPR does not apply to that person even whilst they're in the UK or the EU as far as use of your service is concerned. So if we take a second example... A startup company established in the USA without any business presence or establishment in the EU or the UK provides a city mapping application for tourists. The application processes personal data concerning the location of the customer using the app, the data subject, once they start using the app in the city they visit in order to offer targeted advertisements to places to visit, for example restaurants, bars, hotels, museums, etc., the application is available to, for tourists while they visit New York, San Francisco, Toronto, Paris and Rome. Now in this instance, the US startup via its city mapping application is specifically targeting individuals in the EU, namely in Paris and Rome, through offering its services to them when they are in the EU. The processing of the EU-located data subjects personal data in connection with the offering of the service does fall within the scope of GDPR, as per Article 3, Paragraph 2A. 
Furthermore, by processing data subjects' location data in order to offer targeted adverts on the basis of their location, the processing activities also relate to the monitoring of behaviour of individuals in the union. The US startup processing would therefore fall under the scope of GDPR as per Article 3.2b. So you can see how it's a fine balance between when something does apply, when, when GDPR does apply to processing of data and when it doesn't. So if you are an organisation or company based outside the EU and you're not certain whether GDPR does apply to you or not, please do drop us a line to podcast at insurety.co.uk, E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk. One of our specialists will come back to you and we can help guide you through this process of whether GDPR does apply to your data or it doesn't because it's not a simple exercise to carry out. There are various criteria which have to be applied to the data and we'd be happy to talk those through with you if you get in contact with us if you think this situation applies to you. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Another area for frequent confusion is when someone is a data controller or when someone is a data processor. And it's clearly not possible in a couple of minute article like this to cover off all the scenarios. But we would cover one interesting one which has come to our attention this week, which is in regard to pension schemes. Now, a pension scheme typically will have a board of trustees who are responsible for the financial regulation of the pension fund and also a company or organisation who would deal with all the day-to-day processing of the pension fund. And the two may be separate, two separate organisations, or maybe one the same organisation with maybe the board of the organisation acting as the trustees and the company itself just doing the work. But either way, the ruling this week is that in terms of a pension fund, the data controller is the trustees. So all the trustees together are the data controller for the data within the pension scheme. And whether the processing of the pension is done by employees of the same company or by a separate external company doesn't really matter that's regarded as being a data processor so an individual company could in effect be a data controller and a data processor in this case where the data controller is the trustees where this becomes relevant is in the case of where there is a data breach because if there is a data breach the People who have the responsibility for reporting the data breach to the ICO, if it's where it needs to be notified to, if it's serious enough, and notified within 72 hours, are the data controllers. And so in this instance, if you had a pension scheme and you had a data breach, it's crucial that the people processing the data notify the trustees of the scheme without delay, because it's the trustees who will have the responsibility of reporting that data breach to the ICO. And so it's just well worth making sure if you are a trustee of a pension scheme or indeed you're the administrator of a pension scheme, it's worth checking you've got those procedures in place so that if your processor has a data breach, they know to contact the trustees of the pension fund 
without delay, so that the trustees can then make a decision on the severity of the data breach and whether that data breach needs to be notified to the ICO or not. And in either case, of course, the data breach would need recording in a data breach register. And there would clearly need to be two data breach registers in this case, one for the data processor and one for the data controller. So just an example of where data controller and data processor have clear lines and why the lines of communication in any situation where data is involved are so important to ensure that in the event of a data breach, the reporting process can occur as it should. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. And finally for this week, we've had a couple of queries from listeners asking whether specific consent is needed if you're a company or an organisation for you to send Christmas cards out in the post or indeed by email to your clients and your employees, etc. The short answer is no, you don't need consent because if someone is a customer of yours, so you're in regular contact with them, or an employee of yours, so you're in regular contact with them, and it's not unreasonable for them to expect to receive a Christmas card from you, i.e. something you've always done, then there's absolutely no extra things you need to do. You can still carry on sending out your Christmas cards to your customers and your staff, just as you always have. What you can't do is use a Christmas card as cold marketing to potential client who you've never had any conversation with at all before. That really wouldn't be a good idea. Uh, although, in practice, I can't really see anyone objecting to receiving a Christmas card. They might just bin it, of course, if they're not expecting it, but I can't really see why anyone would raise a complaint about it. But in pure technical terms, you shouldn't use a Christmas card as a cold marketing message to potential clients but for sending out to your staff and your existing clients and your suppliers and so on, absolutely no problem at all. Do not worry about it. No one's going to get excited about it. Please just carry on sending out your Christmas cards just as you always have. While we're on the subject of Christmas, just to let you know that we won't be producing the GGBL Weekly Show on either the 22nd or the 29th of December. 2019 so after our episode on the 15th of december so four weeks from today after our episode on the the 15th of december our next episode will not be until sunday the 5th of january 2020 but we have plenty to bring you between now and then you're listening to the gdpr weekly show with your host keith budden So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. Check us out on Facebook. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurability production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.